160 years ago from the spot where I am standing, it would be very likely that you would hear the sound of cannon fire. It's unusual to find the scars of war across the state of Florida nowadays. The Civil War did have its impacts on the state, and a few battles and conflicts occurred throughout our state, but before the Confederate States of America lost their footing in Florida, there was some actual violence between the Union and Confederate soldiers within the borders of Florida. You'll find signs of it every once in a while, forts or towns affected by random encounters, but I did not expect to find one in a state park dedicated to a tree. In the Torreya State Park in northern Florida, you'll find evidence of a very rare type of Florida tree, a tree we've talked about on previous episodes, and we'll talk about even more in a few minutes. You could see specimens of the tree itself, and even an old home that stands overlooking the absolutely beautiful Apalachicola River. The Apalachicola is a massively important river millions of years ago. It carried the white sands to Florida shores from the tops of the Appalachian Mountains themselves. Now, as I visit, some boaters drift lazily along our waters, enjoying a warm late February afternoon, but a century and a half ago, the Apalachicola was anything but peaceful. Rather, from the shores right nearby, danger was hiding just out of sight. You see, the Apalachicola connects to other waterways further north in Georgia, so it provided an essential marine thoroughfare for Confederate ships. But the Union had an advantage in this naval combat. The Confederates were, of course, secessionists, traitors to the United States, in hopes of maintaining slavery within their states, citing states' rights as their reason, but the Confederates and their flag always have and always will stand in support of slavery. So, in their treasonous secession from the United States, the Confederates forgot one very important detail. The Union was already ready for conflict in their own waters. So the Union boats blockaded the waters around Florida and other southern Confederate states. Any waterway became more than vital for the Confederates, so the Apalachicola became something vital to protect. The water could be a battleground, but what if they could defend the water from the land? To that end, in 1862, the Confederates built batteries in higher elevation facing the water, including within the boundaries of what is now Torreya State Park. It's called the Battery at Hammock's Landing, and, quote, it mounted six heavy cannons ranging in size from 18 to 32 pounders, end quote. Big guns, literally. The battery here within the park was actually built in 1863. This is from signage within the Torreya State Park itself. It reads, quote, 137 enslaved African Americans provided by Florida Governor John Milton were forced to build the gun batteries, end quote. What was built included these holes, these shelters of sorts, built into the bluffs, allowing the soldiers to hide amongst the land and having the cannon appear right over the top of the bluff. There were these weapons, of course, but also powder magazines for the tools used to fire the cannonballs at the water below. Before the Confederacy lost the war in 1865, these batteries were abandoned and their weapons were taken with them, but the holes that they had dug remained. So imagine you're me, taking a hike through the woods with my guest this week, enjoying the views of the Apalachicola below. We'd already done a survey through the uncharted woods in the morning, but now it was the afternoon and the laid out trail of the state park was a welcome sight. We repeatedly expressed our great joy at no longer hiking on tattered land, but the comfort of a nice winding trail. But look to your right and you'll see what I saw. Holes in the ground, trenches of sorts, the nature taking it back, but the undeniable presence of man's influence on the land here. And note the signs among the several holes in the ground. They refer to the Confederate gun placements, each individual one that's still visible. And when you look to the other side stretching below, there is the river. In a place so overrun in Florida nature, we see what happens when humans get involved. 
It's been a century and a half since the end of the American Civil War and the Confederacy lost, a reminder some folks still somehow need to hear. But just as the scars from their wretched cause still pepper the country to this very day, so too do the scars of war on our natural landscape. We human beings can't help but leave marks on our nature, it's what we always do. Sometimes it's obvious in the form of abandoned battlements from the century before last. Sometimes it's more subtle, like the grass on the side of a highway that you pay no attention to, or the tree deep in the panhandle that is slowly fading away. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. Welcome to Spring Break. This is our second Spring Break episode, and for this trip, we're going all the way up to the Panhandle west of Tallahassee, and we're going deep into the woods to discover a very important tree that we've talked about before and to learn even more about the impact of human beings on the ecosystem around us. This week, a return to Terea. We hike with my friend Lily Anderson Messick, talking the Florida Terea, mosquitoes and ticks, our trip in the woods, and the surprising ways that invasive plant species affect our everyday lives. But first, let's go to the woods. This audio uh, that I'm recording does not reflect uh, in its sound is the dozens of mosquitoes that are swarming around our feet right now. Oh my god, look at my left leg. Wow, yeah. Look at that. Okay, actually, right as I said that, oh good. The second we put thing on, this uh, right as I said, the sound will not reflect it. I swear to god, a mosquito flew by the microphone. I heard like a just right by it. We are at the second terea that we spotted of the day. The first one was pretty tall. It was on uh, an area that had been, uh, you said, unnaturally eroded. Was that the term you said? And uh, this guy's, a mosquito landed on my hand. The confidence to land on my thumb. Um, This one was under a a fallen tree that I had to break to move, get it out of the way. He's got some broken... uh, 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 are those trunks? Was that what we would call yeah. this right there? Broken trunk yeah. right there? And uh, it's a bit shorter than the others, but it's the second one we found. I mean, we've been out for less than an hour. Yeah. It's pretty good. And that's unusual, you would have to add. I'm going to take credit for that. Yep, definitely. Because I feel like last time you also said that we saw a lot more than, than you usually do, and I was like, yes. Well, these are prime properties. Okay areas that we're in we i there are already known trees here we knew there, i i had already known there were locations in here yeah so we i knew there would be more if we surveyed so great that is my friend lily anderson messick of the florida native plant society she's their director of north florida programs she does surveys like this all the time going out into the wild searching for this one specific tree and others She is equipped and confident. She knows exactly what she's doing. She takes volunteers like me out into the woods all the time to give her a hand. I did this last year. I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. And I felt it was time to head back to help out with the Florida Torreya yet again. It feels like a sort of yearly pilgrimage that I have to take, and I'm glad to do it. 
if you do not recall, and I, I must recommend that you go back and listen to the previous episode about this. It's in the episode description at the very top. Go back and listen if you haven't. But if you just want to listen to this episode, if you don't recall, the long and short of this story goes like this. The Florida Torea is a native tree that is currently in a phase where it cannot reach reproductive age. By the time it reaches that age, it dies back and does not reproduce, meaning this tree isn't gaining any new specimens, making it what we would call functionally extinct. The reason the tree dies back is because of a fungus called Fusarium terrei. When a terrea specimen experiences stressors like climate change effects and animal impacting it, a tree falling in it, all these different things that can happen. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, warming weather or an abundance of rain. It can be many different things, any sort of thing that puts stress on the tree. When that happens, the fungus manifests and the tree begins to be affected. The tree already has the fungus. As far as they can tell, there are no trees that do not have this fungus. It's a huge problem that could lead to the total elimination of these trees. Lily does these surveys to find as many of these terrea as they can, mark their specific locations, and take detailed recordings of the specimen, and take a clipping for genetic diversity. Those clippings and other DNA are sent to the Atlantic Botanical Garden, where efforts are being made to find a way to stop the effect of the fungus on this plant. The last time, we found about a dozen, and now we were already on our second. The first one surprised us both so much that we we literally yelped when we found it. Now we found another, but this was lower to the water source in the area. I mean, we had been walking in the woods for just a few minutes when we looked down and all of a sudden Lily goes, hey, there's one, there's one right there. And it was very exciting. It was over this ravine and we had to kind of kind of leap over it to get over there. And we were kind of hanging off the side of this, this pretty steep elevation to even get a look at the tree. I was a couple feet up holding onto our bags, but Lily was in the thick of it. I mean, she is brave to a degree that I can't even explain. But the hike that we're doing goes through areas of Florida where there are these massive ravines. Like I said, these huge cuts into the earth where natural water flows out. The ravines have been created by erosion from the flow of water over millennia. Sometimes there's other sources of erosion. Many of the areas that Lily is surveying in are also used to harvest lumber. So the collapsing of trees and other influences can change the landscape as well. Additionally, this region was hit by Hurricane Michael in October of 2018, felling many trees. So as we hike, we're climbing up and down ravines, navigating fallen trees and foliage, slipping through thorny brambles and walking along higher elevation with caution to prevent tumbling down a hill into a ravine and into fresh water. But Perhaps the most irritating threat of all, not the elevation, not the fallen trees, not the brambles, although the brambles are pretty bad, but perhaps the thing that was most frustrating to have to deal with were the bugs. The mosquitoes were out and about on that day. Get out of here, Skeeters. Good gracious. Is it because of the location that we are like further down yeah, that they're more intense? Like, yeah. We're, we're like closer to water. Ravine, yeah. So there's less wind and there's readily um, available standing water. Yeah. Nasty. There weren't, is it a time of year thing that like in January when I was here last time there weren't as many? Um, it's the temperature. Yeah. It's because it's so, it's been unnaturally warm for at least a week or more. Yeah. And so then we get, then they hatch. Ugh. But these are the native ones. 
Yeah. So honestly, I can't complain really about them because you can see we're both covered in them, and yet we probably only have a few handful of. Look bites. at that! Look at how yeah, they land on they're me. They're dense. This this is like close to Everglades level here. Oh, it is. Oh my God, that reminds me of those the those accounts, those diary accounts of people who were in the Everglades in like the 1700s, being like, "I am in hell." That's like literally the quotes. They used to like kill whole herds of cattle because they would suffocate them with the amount of mosquitoes like oh, the cattle would God. inhale. God. Uh, yeah. That is disgusting. Yeah, because like post storms, you know, there would be massive waves of yeah. like, of mosquitoes hatching. Oh, I can definitely feel them getting me through my shirt. But the bites of these native ones don't last very long. Yeah. Like they don't last all day like the Asian tiger mosquito. Oh, God, those guys are nasty. Those guys are the ones they say are the size of birds. Yeah. Carry oh. away. No, the Asian, the Asian and Gypsy ones? are the little ones that are in town that are oh, okay. striped, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, and they, sure, like, sure. they, hurt when they bite almost, oh. and then they itch for, like, a day or two. Get off. They're landing on my fingers. Yeah. The confidence. Lily suggested I walk around a bit, kick the mosquitoes off of me. It was a good idea, and it worked. The mosquitoes stayed off as I roamed around in search of more of the Terea trees. I, I tried to be better at finding them on my own. That was something that Lily was trying to get me to practice, and it's something I've worked on in the last year, something I want to keep improving on every time I go up to visit her. She talks about this thing called plant blindness, which is when a person does not make the effort to understand the different types of plants around them, and that leads to you thinking of plants as sort of a homogenous thing, just sort of one type of thing no matter wherever you go but plants are very diverse and there's so many different types of them everywhere that you go in different ecosystems and different types of landscapes so i've spent the last year trying to be better trying to point out the trees that i know trying to look at grass and flowers and, and just easy things trying to determine what i'm looking at and and I thought it would make me a little bit better at spotting the terea trees but i did not spot any without lily's help but I'll get there. I'll keep practicing. Maybe next year. This year we only hiked for about two hours. We found maybe half a dozen of these trees, like maybe four or five, and collected data on them all. And while last year was an intense day of hiking, I mean literally all day, this year somehow in the shorter amount of time that we hiked, it felt even more intense. The terrain was a bit rough, there were heavier patches of land to get through, and the bugs, man, I cannot overstate how difficult they were. The mosquitoes were everywhere, but I started to struggle because I got really afraid of ticks. Hours later, I'm standing in the bathroom of the Tallahassee Holiday Inn near the Capitol. I've just plucked two ticks off of me, one from behind my knee and another from my hand. I'd spent all day terrified of them, convinced they were crawling on me, and the second I changed out of my hiking clothes, I discovered the tiny pests were indeed sticking to me, even after I left the woods, an hour after I left the woods. I had been warned by Lily to check, double check, triple check, make sure there were no ticks on me, to change as soon as I could, and shower as soon as I got home. Trouble was, I was more than four hours from home, which is plenty of highway to be anxious on. But I did my best. I was an hour from where the ticks could have even hopped on me in the first place. The woodland bugs eventually were tossed into a sink and thrown away. I never found another tick. I checked many times, but the specter of them lingered in my mind for the rest of the day, for the rest of the week, to be honest with you. 
You see, ticks are dangerous, they're nasty, and they carry diseases. If you get one on you, they can bite and transmit certain diseases like Lyme disease. They don't always, but some can. They live out in the woods, underfoot, under the foliage, and as long as you're diligent and remove them as soon as possible, their impact is minimal to none. The ones on me hadn't even bitten me. They maybe crawled on me, they left a little a little pinch on me, but it was nothing serious. I'll include a link to some first aid on how to deal with ticks. I'll spare you the details. It's a little stomach churning, but I, I think you should be aware of how to deal with ticks if by any chance you stumble into them while you were out in the woods. The type of tick that was on me was a Lone Star tick. He had a little white spot on his back, the telltale sign of one of the most common ticks in the Florida woods. They are disgusting, but now, he was dead. In the spring and summer in Florida, our native nasty little critters crawl up your legs and could cause some trouble. So keep an eye out and you will be just fine. Hopefully you hike with as good of a friend as I had who, who, who kept reminding me, kept me safe. Hopefully you have a friend who keeps you safe as well. But as nasty as these little creatures are, as, as dangerous and almost villainous as they seem, they are native. They are a part of the Florida wildlife. They're a part of the ecosystem. But that's what brought me to Lily again, something that we wanted to talk about, something she suggested months ago. Obviously, I wanted to hike again, but she reached out to me because of a topic she wanted to talk about, specifically in relationship to these Florida terrea, invasive species. Misconceptions about invasive species and how we can manage them more and more, it's a thing that she deals with all the time, and she wanted to talk about it on the show. So... Lily and I left the woods. We'd spent a few hours surveying, and then we spent a few hours in the Torreya State Park, hiking along the blazed trail, finding those Confederate war spots that I told you about, and even finding some actual lily flowers. Lily's with Lily, though Lily's name is spelt with two L's and the lily flowers. Spelt, wait, well, well, hang on. Lily's name is spelt L-I-L-L-Y, and the lily flower is L-I-L-Y. You see what I mean? There's only two, you get it. Anyway. Before we started our trip back to Tallahassee, Lily pulled her truck over to the side of the road and stopped us by a field of inconspicuous-looking golden grass. It's called Kogan grass. One word, spelled C-O-G-O-N grass. Kogan grass. I'd suggest you look it up so you can keep your eye out in case you see them out in the wild. It's important that we uh, try not to spread them if we can. Lily explains why. Here is Lily Anderson Messick. Tell me what we're looking at. We are looking at Kogan grass. Imperata cylindrica is a genus and species, and it is a very threatening invasive species. Mm -hmm. So it is spread it's spread across the southeastern U.S., but it's very bad in Florida, and it's um, really bad in Central and South Florida, and it's getting it's spreading really quickly across the Panhandle here. I mean, and, where we are, there is just an absolute ton of it. It's just, yeah. and it's so dense. It grows so densely. So it spreads by underground runners. Yeah. And it sends up one of the defining features of it is that it doesn't bunch like most of our grasses. It doesn't come from one, you know, like rootstock. It has these underground runners that uh, sends up blades from the runners. So it looks very erect. It gives a very like vertical appearance, yeah. you know, rather than bunches of grasses. Sure. This plant is typically native to southeastern Asia and possibly other regions, and it, quote, first arrived accidentally in Louisiana in 1912, and it was introduced intentionally to Florida in the 1930s, end quote. 
It was used for a few purposes. It was, quote, used as packing material for imported goods, introduced intentionally as forage and for erosion control, end quote. Forage would be the sort of thing that you feed to cattle or horses or whatnot, but that's how easy it is for plants that are not supposed to be there to be introduced into an ecosystem. Just as simple as that, a, a harmless thought. And a lot of invasive plants or fungi in Florida do come from Asia. Thanks to irresponsible shipping back in the day, our ecosystems are very similar. Lily talks more about that. And that's where a lot of our invasive species originate from because our climates are very similar. So the species that are brought out of the context of their natural environment and brought here to a very similar climate, but without the natural checks and balances that occur within their evolutionary relationships and their evolved habitat and the habitats they evolved in, um, a lot of those species become invasive, like melaleuca, Brazilian pepper, um, Australian pine, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of species that are invasive here come from that area of the world, kudzu. Oh yeah, kudzu is a big one. Yeah. Um, so this species in particular is really threatening because it spreads so densely it pushes everything else out um, and it becomes a monoculture. And that tends to be the issue with invasive spe plant species is they form monocultures and they prevent the regeneration of our natural habitats, our natural ecosystems. And this species in particular is really threatening because most of Florida's ecosystems are fire adapted mm -hmm. and have periodic fire return to the landscape. And this species is adapted to fire. What? And I was it, about to ask, is this something that you could just burn this in bunches? That's so that would be a treatment for, you know, a potential invasive species would be burning it because our, you know, our native habitats are fire adapted. Most of them yeah. burn. Um, but this one in particular is highly flammable, in fact, and it actually causes, you know, we're here near a home. And if this were to grow up near home and just one little spark can ignite it and it burns very hot. Oh, it burns very quickly and very hot and it burns so hot that it can even kill mature longleaf pine because it burns like at over 400 degrees. My goodness. And so that's one of the threats for the species is if it's near human habitation, it can, you know, be a fire hazard, but also it can kill even mature trees because it burns so hot. And um, yeah, so this is, this is one of the issues with invasive species is that they, you know, our ecosystems are like finely oiled machines mm. that are very, have a delicate balance. And when you throw something like this into it, it's like throwing a wrench into a finely oiled machine yeah. and it, it breaks down, Right. you know, it, it ends up breaking down the, um, it is. And the main issue is that it's replacing plants that our wildlife depend on to survive. And so native plants are the basis of our food webs. And this is native somewhere, right? right. This so is, this is a functioning member of the ecosystem it evolved in. Right. So that, that's what we were talking about earlier on our drive up is that we're talking about how place plants like this and, and the things that we consider invasive the word invasive implies something that is sort of inherently negative because it is to the ecosystem that it is but the plant itself is just doing yeah. what it would be doing There's, in yeah. a different ecosystem where it would fit yeah a lot this better. is a, probably a critical member of the ecosystem that it naturally evolved in um, but here it's without its host of associate species because ecosystems are again they're like very complex and 
they there are all of these interdependent relationships that are happening because these species all evolve together and this species did not evolve with this species here and so it doesn't have the natural bacteria or fungi fungal relationships or the insects that fed on it um, and because it doesn't, it's not moving the energy up the food chain. So right. like we said, the native plants are the basis of the food chain. They're the basis because our native insects eat native plants. Mm -hmm. And the insects move protein up the food chain in the form of themselves. Right. They're a critical source of protein for the food chain, food chain and also nutrients. And so because nothing is feeding on this, it's taking up water, nutrients, sunlight, all of these resources that are finite in yeah. the environment and they're not passing it up the food chain so that creates a breakdown. And some invasive species like Hogan grass, it's just incredibly difficult to even fully eradicate. You have to rip it up and leave no trace and that's really hard to do completely. Once you leave a mark, the scar never really goes away. And Lily has been spending a lot of her effort trying not only to stop the spread of current invasive species, but also to prevent future invasive species. One such species that could turn out to be an invasive species? Well, it's the very tree that Lily is trying to protect, the Florida Torreya. If you introduce the Torreya with its current issues, the fusarium, the fungus, into a different environment, you are threatening other ecosystems to exposure of the very same fungus that is leading to the Torreya becoming functionally extinct. Lily speaks more on that. We talked about how um, like plants like this have a specific place where they do prosper, where they are part of the system. And for here, I mean, where we are, the Torreya is a part of that, but there is uh, plants like Torreya and other plants that are being moved to locations because people are trying to preserve them, put them in places where they can protect them because they're trying to keep them from going extinct. But we're seeing negative effects from that the same way we see that. Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? So yeah, the conservation of a species and the treatment of an invasive species is not a blanket, you know, there's no one simple easy answer for all of them. You yeah. have to treat it on a case-by-case -case basis. And in the case of Terea, but in general, in the case of most rare plants, the solution is to conserve the species is not to, you know, plant them in some other place, you yeah. know. Um, and unfortunately, that uh, is is a solution that one conservation organization has come to is they they have erroneously assumed that Terea, based on um, fossil records of of um, con conifer species that um, have been identified by paleobotanists as not being Terea taxifolia, but which they think are Terea taxifolia, um, are they think Terea belong further north. And regardless of whether Terea did belong further north or not, the reality is that the fusarium that has infected Terea that they are all infected with um, also infects and spreads to other genera. And, yeah. and specifically Suga, which is the, the hemlock, mm -hmm. um, which are already threatened by the Willia delgid, an invasive insect. Yeah. And so the hemlocks are suffering and they are spreading this fusarium, which can kill hemlock and it can also kill specific pine species as well. And it can infect hardwood, some hardwood species. And so this is an introduced pathogen that came from Asia. It evolved most certainly in Asia um, and was brought here. We don't know how, but it got here 
and infected our terea because they had no natural resistance to right. it because they didn't evolve with sure. it. The terea no, no, they, this, uh, that was not their ecosystem yeah. to deal with that. Right. So the terea in Asia evolved with those mm -hmm. this um, pathogen, but we don't know for sure yet. That hasn't been proven by science, but that's right. all hypothesis. Um, so, so anyhow, the fusarium is here, and they think that planting the terea further north is going to save this tree. But unfortunately, what they're doing in, in thinking that they're helping the conservation of a species, they're actually harming the ecosystems right. and potentially causing further extinctions. Well, we talked about that a little bit as well with your Instagrams, where you'll be posting pictures of beautiful flowers that you see outside and stuff mm -hmm. like that, and people asking where they can get those sorts of of flowering trees yeah, or things they see, like that. They see her, I post a rare plant and then they're like, oh, how can I get this and plant it to save it as well in my yard? And the reality is, is that if you live in its natural habitat, that would be great. But if you live in Virginia and this is a plant endemic to the Florida panhandle, mm -hmm. that's not exactly helpful. And in fact, in the long term could be harmful. Right. And so the best way to conserve rare species is to conserve them in situ in the landscape that they naturally occur on. And that means um, land conservation, so mm. land acquisition, conservation, and then land management, which right. is a critical part of conservation, managing the land to make sure that it, you're restoring the habitat and ma managing it for, especially in the case of North Florida, fire. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that is how you actually conserve species and not by taking them piecemeal and planting them in your right. personal yard. What you, sh you should certainly be planting native plants in your yard, but you should be planting the plants that would have occurred in your yard in your yard so yeah. that you're restoring the ecosystems in your area. The ecosystems that we have altered and that we depend on and we need to restore in order for human survival. So um, you can be a part of that process and then you get to see all of your native insects and everything and wildlife will return and you get to enjoy them in your yard and see that restoration. But taking piecemeal rare plants because they're cool or they have a cool story or they look neat is not helpful in the long run. Although it comes from a good place in your heart and right. understand the desire. I mean, the thing I'm, it makes me think of it is like, it, there's a certain element of of uh, you want to create the thing that looks the best, or you have this flower that yeah. looks the coolest, when in reality it's about what you should be trying to do. Beyond aesthetic. Yeah, beyond the aesthetic of thinking what a what what kind yeah. of yard you want to have, but rather a yard that can be a uh, functioning uh, ecosystem. Yeah, and like demonstrably good for yes. the world. Like put put an effort into the ecosystem that that you can have a part in, because you know it's a it's a thing that people talk about all the time of like the net neutral of our existence right we yeah. will inherently be having some impact in the environment yes. with the way that the world is right yes. now and to at least be try nobody can really go back and be neutral of everything they've yeah. done but if you can make an effort in some way to do those yeah. things it's and and to and do we it have to follow the science right you know, the science will guide us and that is what we have learned as of this far is like recreating planting the native species to your area regional species is the best thing that you can do yeah. in your yard and so you really get to see it's so enjoyable too because it's like when you bring those plants back the plant the animals that are in the area are going to respond readily yeah. you know every time we do a conservation episode every time we talk about our relationship with the nature around us we talk about the same thing. We are a part of this ecosystem. We don't just live in it. We are 
in it. Our impacts are oftentimes more negative than not, but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, invasive species, we vilify them in a sense. We, we treat them like they're this dangerous thing because they are. But the plant has a spot it's supposed to be. It has a function in an ecosystem where it has evolved to be functional in that ecosystem. Human beings can be functional in that ecosystem. So it's spring now which means new growth is coming. Summer is just on the horizon, but spring is such a wonderful time of nature, finding a new life cycle, new things are beginning. I saw so many scars of humanity's impact on nature over that trip with Lily. I saw it in the Terea, in the trenches dug by the Confederate soldiers, and in the grass, the inconspicuous looking grass on the side of the highway. I think we need to think of it like that, that these are scars after injury. And I think one of the things we should be trying to do in this world is to leave it better than we found it. To leave less scars, leave only footprints, you know what I mean? It's, it's sort, of, sort of one of Florida's biggest catchphrases. I think it would be nice if everybody, when they went into the woods, when they thought about the impact they were leaving on the nature or the ecosystem around them, was to leave no scars behind. Because we are a part of this ecosystem, and if we are not careful, we will continue to be an invasive species ourselves. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Let me know what you like about this show. Send me a message on Instagram or Facebook at WFMPod or send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I really want to hear from you. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to thank my friend Lily Anderson Messick for taking the time to speak with me just a few weeks ago. You will hear from her again soon, no doubt. But please go check out Lily's Instagram. She posts amazing stuff on there all the time. I've included a link to her Instagram and a link to the Florida Native Plant Society so you can see more of their work on Instagram, on their own website. They do really amazing stuff. So go check out the links in the episode description to learn even more about Lily and her team. Thank you to her and to the FNPS, as always. All of the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, folks, next week it is spring break part three. We are going into yet another state park and diving a little bit into history to talk about the strange things that human beings were able to pull from trees. Yes, we did not just use trees for their lumber. We used them for something else entirely. We are going to be digging into that pun intended next week as we take another spring break road trip and then a week after that we're going to south florida i cannot wait for you to hear that episode so keep tuning in keep enjoying your march and have a wonderful spring break until next monday i am nick delisandro be good to yourself be good to others drink more water and go gator and muddy the water have a great week have a great spring break i will see you next week <laughs>